the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, the Yates sisters. We'll explore the lives of Elizabeth and Susan Yates, important figures in the Irish cultural revival, whose work has been overshadowed by their more famous siblings. Also, stories of the Irish in Italy during World War II. We'll hear about some of the extraordinary individuals who resisted the fascist regime. But we begin this evening with the race to reach the South Pole in the early 20th century. In January 1912, five men walked through an alien world of snow and ice in the face of bitterly cold polar winds. Much has been written about the famous Terra Nova expedition, which saw Captain Robert Falcon Scott and his team of explorers attempt to reach the last great undiscovered place on Earth. But now, for the first time, the focus is on the women in their lives. Catherine McInnes is the author of the book Snow Widows, Scott's Fatal Antarctic Expedition Through the Eyes of the Women They Left Behind. She spoke to our reporter, Colm Flynn. I have always felt there was more to the story. I think that it's such a kind of classic tragedy that it's become a myth, and I wanted to know what the real story was. The men wrote what they really thought to their women folk. In this case, the Snow Widows with three wives and two mothers. The women probably knew more about what the men really felt than the man in the sleeping bag next door. I used to say this was the unofficial story, but now I think it's the real story. Catherine, before we talk about the Snow Widows, remind me of Robert Falcon Scott and his attempt to reach the South Pole. This was his second attempt, his first was from 1901 to 1904, which was the Discovery Expedition. And in that expedition, the ship was frozen into the Antarctic Sea when the Antarctic winter came. So in this expedition, he decided that he would go down in this ship called the Terra Nova to the Antarctic and then send it back to New Zealand to overwinter there where the sea doesn't freeze so that the ship wouldn't be in peril. Give us an idea of the kind of place that they were going into, because even today, the Antarctic is a very inhospitable place, and we live in the age of GPS and modern technology, but this was over a hundred years ago. I mean, these men were really going to the final frontier, weren't they? It was the final frontier. I mean, nobody knew what was at the South Pole. Maybe that was where the Garden of Eden was. And they were surviving temperatures down to minus 60. So their teeth were cracking. They were phenomenally tough, incredibly tough. Before the team had set out on their journey, their wives had written post-dated letters to them. They also wrote to their families and friends talking about their husbands being away. From examining these letters and interviews with people who knew them, Catherine was able to get an idea of what this time was like for the men's wives. Like the wife of Captain Robert Falcon Scott, Kathleen Scott. I think she was fascinating. She had a very ropey start. Her mother died when she was very young and her father's new wife wasn't really interested. So she was sent to a convent. She became an artist and specialised in sculpting, and early on developed a keen eye for the male form. And thereafter, she sculpted naked men almost obsessively. She was obsessed with the perfect, she called them lions. She was looking, she said, for the father for my son. She didn't want to have daughters. She hated women. Wow. She flirted outrageously. She was an incredible tease. And if men didn't fall in love with her instantly, she wasn't interested. So Kathleen wrote a letter to Scott and said to him, open it the day before you set out on your expedition. And in the letter she said, you must know that it's not your physical life that will profit me and Peter most. If you feel there's anything you've need to do at the risk of your life, do it. We shall only be glad. 
So that's quite powerful as a message. It is do or die, isn't it? Yeah, it seems that she wasn't that concerned really for her husband's safety, was she? I think uh, she felt that once uh, he had had a son, that was his immortality. And interestingly, in that letter, it says it won't crossed out, wouldn't be your physical life that would profit me and Peter most. Isn't that incredible that she anticipated that he was going to die? That won't. Another man on the team was Edgar Taff Evans. I think Taff was the most incredible chap. He's extremely bright, also very capable, very motivated. He was a PT teacher for the Navy. He was from Middleton in Wales and married his cousin Lois. She was a very hard worker. The problem for Lois was that several problems. She So Lois had three children herself and Terra Nova Expedition was not a government-funded expedition. It was a private sponsorship. And when Scott realised that he was going to have to stay for a second year to be able to achieve the South Pole, he asked the men to forego their second year's salary. And we think that Taff agreed to do this because he was so keen to win to get to the South Pole. So Lois went to the post office along with a lot of the widows from the Titanic because this was in 1912 and a lot of the people had been... A lot of the... Um, this was the same year as the Titanic. Same year. So the, the staff of the Titanic were principally recruited from Southampton and Portsmouth. So there were a lot of Lois's friends. And so after that tragedy... You know, there were queues of people trying to get money from the post office and Lois was in the queue and she got to the front and she said, uh, can I have my allowance? And the person at the post office person said, I'm, I'm sorry, there's no money. And Lois was shocked and said, can you check? And they said, no, nothing. Unlike Kathleen Scott, Lois was poor and as her husband battled through the snow without sending back paychecks, she really began to struggle. Her family in Gower hadn't heard from her and wow. her cousin, Will Tucker, went down to Portsmouth to see if she was OK. He opened the door and found them all very thin and they had sold all the furniture. On the 17th of January 1912, Scott and his team eventually reached the South Pole, only to find a flag of Norway already there, and a region team had beaten them a month earlier. The men made the torturous journey back, weak from exhaustion, hunger, and extreme cold. But they never made it. He and his men were found by an Arctic team in their tents eight months later, frozen solid. And when the Antarctic team retrace the route to the South Pole as far as they can to be able to try and find the dead men and they come across this tent. They go into it to be able to retrieve as much information as they can and the, most of the men are standing outside because it's only a tent for three and suddenly they hear the sound of a gunshot and they shout to the people inside, are you okay? And they say, yes, we just had to... Um, lift Scott's arm to retrieve the letter and it broke off and the sound was like the sound of a report of a gun. Wow, it just shows you how frozen the bodies were. And what was the reaction of Kathleen Scott when she was notified of the news that her husband had perished? Uh, she was on a boat. She was going sort of anti-clockwise around the world from California to New Zealand. And so while there was a memorial ha service happening in St Paul's because the news had reached Britain that the King was attending with 10,000 people in the streets around in London, Kathleen was on a boat where, and they couldn't contact her. So she didn't know that it was happening. Anyway, she was um, going out to New Zealand and when, she f when they finally did manage to reach her with the radio, um, she wrote in her diary that she was determined not to be sad but when I've read the actual diary, which is in the University Library in Cambridge, the writing deteriorates. So although she is trying to be incredibly brave and stoical and positive and say what an incredible example he has been, her writing looks as if she is dictating to a child and then it looks as if she's swapped her pen into her left hand. It, it deteriorates entirely. 
And Catherine, sadly for Lois, the wife of Taff, I know that after they published the diaries of Scott, the captain, her and her family were bullied and they were treated so terribly. Why was that? Because at the time that Scott was writing his diary after they left the South Pole, all five men were basically starving for various different reasons. They were at altitude. They hadn't anticipated having to be so high. They, their rations were not sufficient for the amount of exercise they were taking. On the return journey, Taff had been injured and was extremely weak. He had fallen into a crevasse and hit his head, probably had a brain hemorrhage. But Scott said, um, he is becoming impossible. He's so clumsy. Um, and so, you know, Scott was criticising him in his diary. Also, he had Taff, when he was reducing the size of the sledge, he had cut himself by mistake. The knife slipped and it went into his hand and he probably had septicemia from that. So he had a lot of problems, starving, septicemia, head injury... Um, So he was going very slowly and Scott was very frustrated that Taff was holding them up. So he wrote things which they got published. And so the community in the Gower um, began to think that perhaps Taff was responsible for the disaster because he'd held the others up. Wow, that they might all still be alive if it wasn't for him. Exactly, exactly. So the problem is that Lois was championing him, obviously, But um, Sarah Evans, Taft's mother, also Lois's aunt, heard the news. She couldn't write. She was born the wrong side of the Education Act. So she was told the news by a neighbour. And she said to a reporter, I can't help thinking that if they, uh, they might have survived if it wasn't for him, perhaps they should have left him behind which is an incredible thing for a mother to say about her son. For example, when uh, the cigarette card companies made pictures of this uh, story, they did pictures of all the four other men, but not of Taff. And when they did pictures of um, the sledge being pulled, they did it with four men pulling the sledge, not five. They left him out of it because of that. Entirely. And so, yes, the the appalling thing is that as a result, um, Lois's Lois was bullied, her children were bullied at school and even her grandson was bullied. And she was buried in an unmarked grave, perhaps at her request, which is the ultimate tragedy, isn't it? And Catherine, is there any evidence to indicate that with the passing of time... Kathleen Scott became more remorseful and nostalgic and saddened by the loss of her husband? That's a very, very interesting question. Uh, Bernard Shaw was her best friend, practically, and he said, she never looked sad to me. I don't think she even regretted him dying. Um, But her um, second son, Hilton said she definitely was remorseful and she really did love him and uh, she just felt that it was so private she didn't want to share it. Um, I would also say that because I've spoken to Wayland Kennett, now the late Wayland Kennett, a lovely man, her second son, and I have asked him about this because in relation to another explorer and he said that by the time he was in his 20s she had stopped encouraging people to go and do and die. But only Wayland and me and now you know that. So she was very, very private. So the answer is yes, she did change, but not many people know that. Final question, Catherine. From your research and investigation into these five snow widows, five different women, some of them from very different backgrounds, but was there a commonality that you noticed? Was there something that they all shared? That's a very good question. Um, Well, I think if there was one commonality, it would be resilience. They were phenomenally resilient and inspiring and utterly without self-pity. And for that, for, for me, that's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Catherine, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Colin Flynn was reporting there. He was talking to Catherine McInnes, author of the book Snow Widows, Scott's Fatal Antarctic Expedition Through the Eyes of the Women They Left Behind. And that's published by William Collins. Just want to say a quick word about a documentary series starting this Wednesday evening on RTE1 television. The Silent Civil War is based on the first-hand testimonies of family members of 80 of those who were involved in the Irish Civil War between 1922 and 1923. The programme will also feature a series of previously unheard audio tapes of those prominently involved during the revolutionary years in Ireland. The two-part series begins on RTE1 this Wednesday, 26th of April at 9.35pm and will subsequently be available on the RTE player. After the break, we'll be hearing about the life and work of Elizabeth and Susan Yates and the important role they played in the Irish cultural revival. Stay with us. The Yates sisters, Elizabeth and Susan, were important figures in the Irish cultural revival. Somewhat forgotten compared to their more famous siblings, the poet W.B. Yeats and the painter Jack Yeats, now a light is being shone on their lives and their prodigious contribution. There's an inaugural symposium happening in Dundrum on the 15th of July, part of a project to revive and expand public knowledge and understanding of the Yeats sisters. Elizabeth was an art teacher, an author and a publisher. Susan, known as Lily, was a skilled embroiderer. For decades, They worked on their own enterprise, Kula Industries, producing books, broadsheets, greeting cards, calendars and hand-coloured prints, many exclusively featuring original work from women artists and poets. I'm joined on the line from Donegal by art historian Dr Angela Griffith, former director of the Irish Art Research Centre at Trinity College in Dublin. I'm also joined from Sligo by Eunan McKinney, who has been leading the Yates Sisters Commemoration Project, which highlights the sisters' pioneering work. You're both very welcome to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Thank you very much, Miles. Angela, can I start with you? Both of the sisters, Elizabeth and Susan, attended the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art and then the family moved to London for a time at the end of the the 19th century. But I think their real body of work was created when they came back to Dublin, wasn't it? That's right. Both women had very successful careers when they were in London and, and... We see at the end of the 19th century, they're starting to train in the arts. It seems to be it's acceptable for women of a certain class to go to art college and to train. And what we see with the sister Lily is that she goes and she works with, of course, the great leader in the arts and crafts movement in Britain, um, William Morris and his company. And he's she's working with his daughter May in the needlecraft area. And also what we see is that Elizabeth, and you mentioned earlier, she was an art teacher. She was trained in Froebel. She was also somebody um, who published her own books and so forth. But she trained with the Women's Society of Printing um, in London and London provided them the foundation. It also provided them the space where they could see what was possible for women in that area. And William Morris had supported women in printing, for example. His printers were the first to be part of union, the printing union. And then they brought these skills with them to Dublin um, and they did so in partnership with Evan Gleeson, another terribly important woman who herself trained as a weaver and who knew the family through the um, Irish Literary Society and who was also a suffragette herself, though the the Yates sisters didn't describe themselves as that, but she was. And when they came back to Dublin, then they had the opportunity to set up the Dunemer Craft Cooperative, Dunemer Industries, and they set that up in Dundrum, which, of course, there they worked for the next following decades. And Elizabeth was a printer right up to her death in 1940. And Eunan, Angela mentioned Dundrum and that sense of place is important as far as you're concerned to how they should be remembered. Yeah, because I think what's happened over that period of time is that largely whilst they were prestigious in the 1910, 1920s period, I mean, their memory has largely been forgotten in Dundrum. I mean, there is a beautiful embroidered piece in the beautiful small church, St. Mary's Church in Churchtown. And apart from having the opportunity to see that occasionally, people would, would not know that the Yates sisters largely occupied that area and that neighbourhood and did all that work at that time in there. And so what we're trying to do is to bring that memory back into Churchtown, into Dundrum, and to try and ensure that the community there have an opportunity to recognise these two 
extraordinary women in my view. Angela, you mentioned William Morris, um, who was a leader of the arts and crafts movement in Britain. What was their association with him? Did they work for him or did they work with him? How did they involve them? Well, they they worked with them. Lily actually worked with the Countscott Industries in the Needlecraft section, which was was directed by um, William Morris's daughter, May. But also very importantly, William Morris had a private press, which was known as Countscott Press. And there, um, Elizabeth actually had the opportunity to see the workings of the press because William Morris was a friend of the Yates family. Their brother, William Butler Yates, was a great admirer of William Morris uh, and the father. So they were part of the circle at that time um, and they were very aware and, and they liked this idea of creating art forms that could reach the masses. Now, we know ourselves, what does that mean? These were bespoke objects were, which were for very much for a mid-class, upper-class audience. But the idea that one of the things that appealed certainly to William and certainly to the rest of the family that William Morris advocated was this idea of uniting the arts so that design and craft and art came together in different forms, be it in needlecraft, be it in publishing, be it in printing. And the sisters embraced this. And certainly this was something that was supported within the family as well. Unan, one gets the sense that they were perhaps uh, slightly patronised by their by their famous brothers, uh, by a Nobel laureate and also a uh, an, an Olympic gold medal winner, Jack B. Yates, in 1924 at the, the Paris Olympics, of all things. Is that the case or was there a collaboration between the four of them? I, don't, I think it's fair to say there was a collaboration, but I, I think it's equally fair to say that there was definitely tensions within the family. And I think that, you know, when you look at the letters and correspondence that's, that's available in the archives, that you will see that I think William Butler Yates in particular, you know, may not have had the most supportive role of, of Elizabeth in terms of just appreciating just her enterprise and her resilience in keeping this enterprise going and keeping the work being produced and the quality of the work. I, th- I think he was I think he was comfortable with the quality of the work, but he certainly didn't really have, f- I think, full respect of her autonomy in relation to that. So I think that it's, um, it was stressful, I think, by times amongst them all. But, I mean, collectively, obviously, there's a huge amount of work that they did produce together, you know. Angela, we're talking about a period here which would be decades before the possibility of, say, www.coolerpress.ie. <laughs> but um, the cooler, the output of Cooler Press was hugely popular with the diaspora, wasn't it? It was. Um, they, they had a market at home, definitely, especially among the middle classes of Dublin um, and, and also. But certainly the diaspora was a very important market for them. What we're very fortunate to have in the Kula, we have the Kula Press Business Archive in Trinity College, which was donated by the family. And those letters are available as are the customer books. And we can see that these prints, the printed text, which included literary figures, really important Irish contemporary writers. And that's important to say that Kula, under the editorship of William Butler Yeats, but it published contemporary writers, whereas normally private presses tended to repeat the classics as such where they produced contemporary writing. But they also, very importantly, and this was under the directorship of Elizabeth, they produced hundreds of visual material which represented images of Ireland. Now, the images that they produced of Ireland tended to be the idea of the metaphor of the West of Ireland being the the ideal Ireland. It's a rural um, idyll that they're producing, but showing working people, working the peasant classes, working in the West of Ireland. This is the type of images that were very popular, images of cottages and so forth. And they found their customer base wide and far. And not only that, they were exhibited, which is important as well, in national and international exhibitions and often international exhibitions, of course, that were sponsored by the state, which included the great um, exhibition that was held with the Paris Congress in 1922 and also the World Fair, for example, in Chicago in the 1930s. So they were representative of what was coming out of Ireland at the time. And I also think those that didn't necessarily have an Irish background, but were interested in Irish literature and the Irish revival and the Anglo-Irish writing at that time, were also buying them. And the quality of them was exceptional. So for those that were collectors, not just of Irish themes, but also of high quality materials, they were also very interested in them. I mean, one of the things to remember that Elizabeth described what she did as art printing. She described them as this because they were hand printed on handmade paper and they were hand coloured, which was an incredibly um, laborious task. 
but created these very beautiful images which people could frame or keep in also in folders. And as we know, they went wide and far. Uh, Yunan, those images that uh, Angela's been talking about, are they a bit sort of John Hind postcard or romanticised view of Ireland? Or did they have an important function in that they were perhaps combating adverse images of Ireland? Yeah, I think you have to put it in the context perhaps of, you know, how Ireland was viewed before that. And I think, you know, we'd all go back to those sort of the London Illustrated News or the, the punch caricatures of Ireland that would have been circulated in an international context and came to have an Irish identity about them. So I think that what I'm just talking about, that wide subscription of these prints and, and books and pamphlets and broadsides that would have went across the world with this fresh, you know, colourful, dynamic uh, illustration of many things that were now Ireland, the new Ireland as it was, I think it has had a very significant role and one of Angela's colleagues has done a lot of work, I think, on this in relation to just what was the role of Kula maybe in forming that national identity at a very early age of the state. So I think, yes, I think they've been undersold a little bit in the context of what role they had in, in shaping an identity for Ireland at the time. Angela, um, a couple of possible myths about the sisters, about Elizabeth and uh, Susan. Uh, Susan was known as Lily because uh, to avoid confusion with her mother, um, That's because right. also also known as as, as Susan. But um, the two women were tend to be kind of lumped together as Lily and Lolly on the one hand. The other piece of received wisdom or perhaps mythology is that the two of them did not get on. Could you address those two issues? Well, I think Union mentioned it earlier, and I think um, I, I think if any of us, if any of us and our siblings were subject to the same sort of scrutiny <laughs> or got to our private correspondence, I don't know how we'd stand up to it. I think there's no doubt there was there was tensions in the sense that there was two women; they weren't married; they were forced, sort of forced economically to live together. But they were also business partners. They were also business colleagues. They were also, um, you know, gifted craftswomen and also professional in that respect. So they, they did work together and they sustained the business when very often others fell by the wayside. I mean, you know, Union referred to earlier about, about Elizabeth's achievements in the sense that she sustained a press when every other male-run private press in London fell by the wayside. So there was that. The two sisters were together and there's no doubt that there's tensions about that. But there was a respect for them both. And I mean, Lily writes about her her sister after she died in 1940 and acknowledged what she had achieved, acknowledged as, fair, as well the contribution of both brothers to the to her press, but acknowledged what she had achieved as a professional. I think there's also the story, isn't there, that Lily was trying to get her married off to Sarah Purser's brother so that they wouldn't have to live together any longer. <laughs> but at the same time, as I said, if you look at what they achieved and what they did together, I think that's fair. I think also the name those of us that like to write don't like the rhythm of Lily and Lolly. It just reads very well. But it was a pet name that was used, that was used within the family. But when Elizabeth, every time Elizabeth signs anything or looks to anything, uh, you can see that she describes herself as Elizabeth Yates, E.C. Yates. That's the way she distinguishes herself publicly. And just to remember, we don't go around calling W.B. Yates Willie which is what the family called him, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Eunan, they, they weren't uh, suffragists or suffragettes, as they would have been called back in the day. Uh, they weren't necessarily radical feminists, as we understand that term today, but they were pioneering feminists in the sense that I think with, with Kula Press, am I right in saying that all the employees were female and also a lot of the artists that they, they worked with were women? Yeah, no, it was absolutely a feminist collective is almost what it was. Mm. And Certainly when in that opening period of Dunemer, when they were with Evelyn Gleeson, I mean, there was up to 35, 40 women working in, in the enterprise at that point, been trained at various levels, uh, whether it be in the weaving or the carpet making and, and, and the print making and embroidery. And so when they then broke and went to Kula down into Churchtown Cottage, which still stands today, there would have been, you know, 14 or 15 young women working in it at that time, been trained at various stages. And indeed, you know, some of the stories of those people are equally going to be told in this project, I think, as well, because, you know, we have people like Molly Gill and Esther Ryan. I mean, Molly Gill went on to become a president of the Cologie Association, you know, was a significant member of Coming to Mon. You know, these are 
in themselves quite unique women as well. So there's a story to be told about the remarkable achievement of all of these women what they have subsequently achieved in their lives. Angela, um, we've talked about the, the possibility of um, condescension in relation to Jack and, and Willie, if I'm allowed to call WB Yates Willie. Um, <laughs> but they, when it comes to condescension, uh, nobody was worse, I suppose, than James Joyce in Ulysses. Oh. What did he refer to them as? Weird sisters, exactly, those weird sisters. But I think, as Lewis Gifford said, I think, um, who has written a very good book on the sisters, she, or sorry, Gifford Lewis, I should say. She said it was probably as much a dig at William Butler Yeats as it was at the sisters because Joyce was among the few contemporary artists that actually our writers hadn't been published by Kula at that point. But I mean, it was, yeah, maybe the less said about that, the better. It tends to be, tends to be quoted and it's one of those things. So maybe in one sense, we talk about them being forgotten. But of course, Joyce, by doing his little bit, has actually made sure that people figure out who were these weird mm. sisters and maybe find out a little bit more about them. And, and Angela, in, in, in Trinity, you are digitising some yes. of the or all of the Kula material. What, what are you digitising precisely? Okay, as I said, we already have the Kula Press archive um, as part of the collections. But as you know, and I'm sure you're aware, Miles, um, and others would be aware, is that Trinity is involved what's called the Trinity Virtual Library. And basically, we're, we're making different collections, different aspects of our wonderful collections, our library collections available to online. And the Kula Press came about, um, project came about because we were given a gift by Vin Ryan, who is of the Schooner Foundation, gave a gift of collection of prints to the college but more importantly, he also supported then making these accessible to a wider audience. So as, as I say, part of Trinity Virtual Library, the images that we have in our collection, including the Vin Ryan collection, have been scanned and are now and are digitised and are available to be seen on the Trinity Digital Collections. If you go into Trinity Digital Collections, you'll see it there in front of you. Um, the other thing that we're doing as well is that we're taking select aspects of the business archive and we're making those available. So at the moment, one of the wo- most wonderful pre- treasures that we have is Elizabeth Yates' own personal photographic li- um, album. And the photograph album is there, which shows the workers and shows the different uh, gr- groups that were at both Dunemer and Kula over the years. And that is also available, including, of course, Elizabeth handwritten notes which explains what's going on in each of them and it's an incredible resource for researchers and it gives us a wonderful insight into the lives of the women and that part of that as well that funding we got from the Schooner Foundation as well has allowed us to in conduct research myself and the postdoctoral fellow which is Dr Billy Shortall um, and we're working together to bring more and more information and much more access to what's available to, to the collections and make people more aware. Finally, Yunan, tell us about the Yates Sisters Commemoration Project in July. What do you hope to achieve with that? Well, we've organised a symposium which will be held on the 15th of July, which coordinates with the 120th anniversary of the first book that was printed in Dunemer in the Seven Woods. That's a, a, essentially a series of talks in the morning uh, by leading scholars like, like Angela as one, Peter Matthews and others. And then in the afternoon there will be a workshop in embroidery, which will be held by the Irish Guild of Embroideries to give people a sense of the stitch in time, so to speak, and um, a walking tour around the church town. Landmarks will be held as well. So we hope that that day in itself will become a, an annual event. And then on the following day and the Sunday, we have a workshop with the National Print Museum, who very kindly are working with us and supporting us in relation to having a workshop uh, for people to experience letterpress and smell of ink, as they say, you know, <laughs> in, in work. So I think that the, you know, the bit, what we're hoping to achieve out of that is that in the first instance that the memory can be rekindled back into the Churchtown Dundrum community and, and then hopefully hopefully go on from there to maybe have a more permanent legacy project for the area, you know, a permanent recognition of the sisters and so that when people are in the area that they will be able to be aware that this wonderful pair of, of women lived and works in mm. this area. Well, that symposium takes place at Taney Parish Centre in Dundrum on Saturday the 15th of July. You can find some of the Cooler Press material online in Trinity's digital collections, as Angela said, and we'll put a link on our own website. My guests are Angela Griffith and Eunan McKinney. Thank you both very much for joining us this evening.
Thank you, Miles. Thank you very much, Miles. After the break, we'll be hearing stories of Irish people in Italy during World War II. Stay with us. During World War II, there were hundreds of Irish citizens based in Italy. They were diplomats, journalists, priests, members of religious orders. Many of them were part of the resistance to the fascist regime, while a few enthusiastically supported it. A recently published book explores the links between Ireland and Italy in the period 1939 to 1945. It's called Roman Imbroglio. Italy and the Irish during World War II. The author is Isidore Ryan, who joins me now on the line from his home in Paris to talk about some of the uh, fascinating individuals profiled in the volume. A very welcome, Isidore, to The History Show. Thank you very much. Now, one of the great sources for your research is the papers of diplomat Michael McQuite. I think they're in the UCD archive. He was the, the Irish ambassador, or as he was officially called, Minister to Italy. That's what it was known during the, the war years. Somebody, I suppose, slightly overshadowed by uh, T.J. Kiernan, who was the Irish Minister to the Holy See, or more particularly by, by Mrs. Kiernan, Delia Murphy. We'll talk about uh, Kiernan and, and, and Delia Murphy later. McQuite was there in Rome from 1938 to 1950. What kind of insights, generally speaking, did you get from the dispatches that he sent? McQuite deserves a book of his own. His background was he was in the First World War, he ended up joining the French Foreign Legion. So he was a Francophile, that's for sure. With Gavin Duffy, he was, he was secretary to the delegation, the Sinn Féin delegation that went to the um, Treaty of Versailles talks uh, in 1919. So by the time he arrived in, in, in Rome in 1938, he, he was a seasoned diplomat. He'd already spent time as well in Washington. And he'd also set up uh, Ireland's delegation to the League of Nations in Geneva. So his papers are a, a treasure trove on what life was like in Rome during the war, his perceptions of Italy's intentions and what was happening to Italy. And there's a huge lot of insight as well into uh, the lives of uh, the Irish community he was looking after. The one, I suppose, the main message that comes across from this sea of papers that he was very punctilious when it came to uh, Irish neutrality. So he didn't have very much time for anybody who sort of stepped out of line or, or in any way endangered Irish neutrality, which meant that he didn't have very much time for Hugh uh, O'Flaherty, which <laughs> I'm sure we'll come yes, to talk about. we will. Um, but he was but, he was anti-Nazi, though. He was uh, certainly did not approve He was a Francophile, of, yeah. yeah. And he had no time for, no time for Mussolini. Comes across very, very clearly. Hmm. Now, uh, let's get on to Kiernan, to TJ Kiernan, who was the yes. Irish minister to the Holy See. He and his family, particularly uh, Delia Murphy, his wife, play an important role in the resistance during this period, don't they? And you mentioned Delia Murphy's collaboration with uh, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty was, uh, yes. was very, very important. So just go into that, to, into the details of what was going on there. Murphy was obviously this famous Chanos singer. She went down with her husband and her four children at the end of 1941. The position of ambassador or minister to the Vatican had been empty for almost two years. So basically, she kept an open house. The embassy or the embassy premises were very close to the to McWhite. They were very close to each other, the center of uh, Rome. But she kept an open house. I think she was very much the mistress of the household and she invited everybody, not just um, Irish people, people on the run. The Irish ministry to the Vatican hid at least two people during the German occupation in 1943 to 1944. But at the same time, she, after the war, she claimed that, as was an open house, there was also Germans turning up, and, and not only people on the run, but also people from the German diplomatic corps, even Kesselring. She said after the war she'd met uh, Kesselring, for example. As for her dealings with um, Hugh O'Flaherty, well, she had access to the diplomatic car with diplomatic number plates, which facilitated her escapades around town, transporting POWs on the run from one location to the other. There's also a famous episode where the embassy's premises backed onto the Wehrmacht's shoe repair shop. So they got over the wall and they gathered up all the boots, the Wehrmacht's boots, and uh, took them away and apparently shod the shoes of all these escaped POWs. That was with her daughter, Blonde. So whether T.J. Kiernan knew all about, about this, I'm not sure. He 
almost certainly have had wind of it, but um, wasn't exactly kosher from the point of view of a diplomat. Certainly not. And um, what about Kiernan and McQuite? Uh, not perhaps the best of buddies? Well, yeah, sometimes they stepped on each other's toes. McQuite was certainly far more supercilious, if that's the word, when it came to Irish neutrality than TJ Kiernan was. Now, O'Flaherty, just tell us a little bit about the activities of O'Flaherty, because he did, uh, he saved apparently hundreds of Allied soldiers and, and, yeah. and Jews and was very close to being, to being caught. Yes, he escaped on one famous occasion uh, where he was in the Pomphilis Palace in the centre of Rome when uh, the SS had been tipped off that he was there, turned up and he uh, apparently escaped, or so he said afterwards, dressed up as a coal man. Uh, the, there was people delivering coal at the same time in this palace, so he had uh, dressed up as one of the coal men and escaped. Flaherty had been in the uh, in Rome since the 1920s, so he, he was an old hand by the time war broke out. So you mentioned numbers. The, the organization, as it was called, it was simply called the organization. At the end of the uh, German occupation of Rome in 1944, one of the other people that worked with Flaherty put the number of people they had at about 3,700. So that's the official number is about 3,700. But was O'Flaherty's position atypical when it came to Irish religious in Rome? Because one of the things that comes across from your book and comes across from your blog is that a lot of the doors of Irish religious institutions in Rome were closed to potential refugees. Well, again, that's a difficult question because you had not quite Kiernan as well saying... Don't do anything to endanger Irish neutrality. If you're taking people, you're endangering Irish neutrality. On the other hand, you've got the Vatican. Vatican or the Pope, Pope Pius XII, is always criticised for his feeble response to uh, the roundup of Jews in October 1943. But in fact, he, he did order churches and convents to be open to anybody who needed refuge. So there was this pressure from different directions. But Irish communities did end up uh, taking in people, including Jews. So the numbers, there's a lady in Italy who's done research and she has very precise numbers. I think the largest number is 11 at the um, San Stefano Rotondo, which is a big hospital run by an Irish order called the Little Sisters of Mary. They're known as the Blue Nuns. So they took in 11 people. That was a hospital that was run by Mary Ambrose, Mother Mary Ambrose, who was from Tipperary. Then you had the Dominicans in San Clemente, who took in four or five people. You had the Carmelites uh, under a man called Kenneth Leahy. He took in several people as well. The Irish College, a little more reticent. They took in one or two. So overall, they may have taken in a couple of dozen people. Mm. Yeah, different various communities. Moving out of Rome, but staying with, um, with, with Catholic resistance, you profile a priest called Daniel Sloan. Um, he was in northern Italy. He became something of a, a chaplain to the partisans, didn't he? Well, that's an, another story that deserves to be told. McQuite uh, made notes for his autobiography, but he never got round to writing it, unfortunately. Same thing with Daniel Sloan. He took notes about his time in Italy and they went up in flames in, um, in a fire in County Cork in the 1950s. But we still have his correspondence with some of his colleagues in the Rosminian order in, in Italy. So Daniel Sloan was, yes, he was in the Rosminian order in northern Italy in a place called Streza on a lake between Turin and Milan. It was the HQ of the Rosminians. It was taken over by the Germans in September 1943. So Sloan had to move out. He moved up the mountains to a place called um, Santa Maria Maggiore, where the Rosminians had a big convent. So in October 1943, that whole area was taken over by partisans, the Italian partisans. They kicked out the uh, fascists and they declared what was called the Repubblica Dosola, which basically covered, uh, I think it was about 16,000 square kilometres of mountain. Daniel Sloan was there. The actual Rosminian's convent was turned into a um, sort of liaison centre come hospital for the partisans. So he ended up uh, acting as chaplain for this Repubblica Dosola. The fascists and the Germans lost no time reclaiming the territory they'd lost to this uh, partisan army. And I think, I have no confirmation, but it was, Sloan was not a pacifist, that's for sure. 
I think he w uh, he was liaising with SOE, the Secret Operations Executive in Switzerland, to uh, parachute arms into this Republica d'Orsola. So there was a price on his head. In any case, November 1944, the fascists uh, come back. They close down this Republica d'Orsola. Sloan has to flee for his life. He flees over the mountains. He gets into Switzerland and he spends the rest of the war in Switzerland. He dies in Florida in 1999. There's a big, long obituary in the Florida Catholic that year for him. There's not one single mention of his <laughs> activities in Italy. So, <laughs> Another fascinating character that you write about uh, was very taken with this uh, particular individual, Darina Larisi, a journalist yes. from uh, Rathgar. Tell me about her. Yes, well, I suppose she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, she had gone to Paris to do postgrad studies in the Sorbonne. She was a very brilliant uh, lady, that's for sure. Uh, her father had been chess champion, Leinster chess champion. <laughs> anyway, his daughter uh, went to the Sorbonne. She came home in September 1939. She'd met an Italian, I think his name was Mackie, and she went down to meet him in Milan in March 1940. Of course, a couple of months later, Italy declares war, so she couldn't get back. And the Germans invaded France in May, in any case. She, she couldn't get back. So she made her way down from Milan to uh, Rome, and she started working for American news agencies. She was expelled in, she was actually expelled the very same day that Germany invaded Russia, the 22nd of June, 1941, because the Italians felt that she was spying for these, uh, I think a bit like this Wall Street journalist in Russia now, he's accused of spying on Russia. It's the same thing happened to her. So she made her way to um, Switzerland. She got as far as Switzerland. And she quickly met a very well-known writer uh, called Ignazio Silone. But she ended up uh, marrying Ignazio Silone and working as his factotum. Ignazio Silone had been expelled from Italy years before. He had been uh, one of the leading lights of the Italian Communist Party. By the way, it was found out after he died that he had uh, portrayed the entire Italian Communist Party leadership in the process. But... He was in Switzerland. He met uh, Darina Larasi. Uh, they fell in love. She acted as his factotum. He initially had contacts with the British, with the SOE, Special Operations Executive, a guy called McClaffery. They didn't get on, so he brought his services to the OSS, the nascent OSS under Dulles, the Americans. And along with Darina Larasi, they organised propaganda into Italy. Another person who was in Italy at this time is the brother of James Joyce, Stanislas uh, Joyce. He was, um, I think, fired from his job, his university job, twice. Tell me a little bit about his experience, his wartime experience in Italy. Yes, <laughs> again, there's another backstory. He, he was described as Poncho Sanchez, as uh, James Joyce's Poncho Sanchez, because he went down to uh, Trieste shortly after James, uh, and he constantly left, uh, helped him and lent him money, etc., so James Joyce left uh, Trieste just before Italy joined the First World War in 1915. Uh, Stanislas was stayed behind and was imprisoned for his trouble in Austria by the Austrians. He was a rather difficult <laughs> individual, I think you could say. He was dismissed from his job in the University of Trieste in 1937, initially, for his protests against Italy's uh, invasion of Abyssinia. So he pulled a few le levers and he managed to get his job back. But three years later, he was dismissed again, again for his criticisms against uh, Mussolini and the fascist regime. And he was told to leave uh, Trieste. So he spent a war in Florence instead. He wasn't allowed to stay in Trieste. He lost his job. He was penniless. He sort of knew some people. He knew, for example, Ezra Pound, people like that, sort of gave him some support. Wouldn't have thought uh, he was terribly simpatico with Ezra Pound. Uh, literally level, perhaps not politically, but Ezra Pound knew his brother. As well as that, the, 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 one of the paradoxes of Italian fascism is that, why well, yes, they expelled Stanislaus Joyce from Trieste and dismissed him from his job, but he was still writing away on his brother in Italian literary magazines right throughout the war. So it, it wasn't as murderous a regime, if mm. that's the way you could put it, as the Nazi regime. There was a certain amount of flexibility, let's say. But he spent the, the war in Florence. 
Finally, a less savoury, but nonetheless very interesting character, Charles Bewley. Bewley was the Irish envoy in Berlin during Hitler's rise to power. But he also spent some of the war, at least in Italy, didn't he? Yes. I mean, the great mysteries to this day is how he managed to travel so freely between Berlin and Rome. So basically, he was being looked after probably by the German diplomatic corps because he, he was proud that he knew Rippentrop, who was the German foreign minister. He may also have got carte blanche from the German security services because he, he spent an awful lot of time trying to make himself useful to the German secret services, intelligence services. So he, he was kicked out, as you say, by de Valera from his position as minister to Berlin. And in 1938, he wrote this notorious report on Kristallnacht. That was basically the last straw. <laughs> he become completely Hitlerian. So de Valera basically dismissed him from his job. He went back to Dublin very, very briefly. And then he went back to Berlin. And from Berlin, he made his way down to uh, Rome, officially as a journalist for an organization called Scandia Press, which was an anti-communist uh, news service set up by the German secret services. And he went around gathering information from his diplomatic sources, because before he went to Berlin in 1933, he had been minister, Ireland's minister to Rome. So he had plenty of contacts in Rome. So he gathered intelligence. He made frequent journeys to Berlin, trying to make himself useful. I don't think he was very useful. He ended up in a place called Merano at the end of the war in northern Italy, which was freed by the Americans. The Americans turned him over to the British. The British initially brought him down to Cinecitta, which is the Italian Hollywood, which they used as an internment center. And then they brought him up to a place called uh, Terni. He spent several months there with Mussolini's uh, widow, <laughs> who spent some time there. And he was eventually released under pressure from the Irish Foreign Affairs Department. But he's up there with Lord Hoho, I suppose, mm. and we know what happened to Lord Hoho. He was quite friendly, I think, at some at one point. He I mean, went, yes, with, he, with met, he then met Lord Hoho. Yes, mm. yes, yes. I uh, claimed to be on intimate terms with Goring and, and Himmler as well, but uh, That's e right. e even less likely a relationship than uh, Stanislas Joyce and Ezra Pound, apparently <laughs> he befriended Hugh O'Flaherty in Rome. Did. They knew, he knew, so, well, uh, again, he, both had been in Rome since the 1920s, so inevitably I would have thought they knew each other, Bewley being the Irish envoy in Rome in the 1920s. So that, yes, they met during the war, even though they were on opposite sides, and they met after the war. They were bridge, uh, they played bridge together uh, until Bewley died in 1969. I actually tracked down his uh, tombstone, which I don't think anybody else has ever tracked it down, but I've tracked down Charles Bewley's uh, tombstone uh, just outside Rome. Anyway, fascinating subject matter. My guest is Isidore Ryan. We've been talking about some of the stories contained in his recently published book, Roman Imbroglio, Italy and the Irish during World War II. And you can find more information about some of the individuals we've been talking about on his website, irishinitaly.org. Isidore, many thanks for joining us this evening on The History Show. Thank you for having me. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan and Harry Buckless on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.